Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to introduce today's lunchtime lecture with Sarah Churchwell, who is the Professorial Fellow in American Literature and Chair of Public Understanding of Humanities at the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. Sarah is the author of a number of books, including Careless People, Murder, Mayhem, and The Invention of the Great Gatsby, and The Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe. Her literary journalism has appeared widely, including in The Guardian, New Statesman, New York Times Book Review, and Financial Times. Sarah also comments regularly on arts, culture, and politics for UK television and radio, and has judged many, many literary prizes, including the 2008 Orange, now Bailey's Prize for Women's Fiction, and the 2014 Man Booker Prize. Sarah's focus is now on writing a book about Henry James, the writer. For today's talk, Sarah will examine the artistic, cultural, and social influences that gave rise to abstract expressionism in America, and the beginning of New York City's influence as the center of Western art world. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Sarah Churchwell. It occurs to me, listening to uh, Amy's introduction, that, um, that the part about New York, I think, is more implicit than explicit um, in the remarks that follow. It also occurred to me, as you were saying that, the, um, it reminded me a bit, for those of you who know uh, David Lodge's novel, Changing Places, there's a bit where a lecturer is invited to give a lecture on, uh, on William Hazlitt, who he works on, and the, he misreads the telegram, or the telegram gets muddled, and it, and it was supposed to be that he would, he would talk about the philosophical, cultural, political, economic, historical, or literary influences on Hazlitt, but he thinks he has to do all of it. Um, and I felt a little bit uh, like that, I must say, working on this, because the abstract expressionists were drawing on such a promiscuous set of influences. They had such um, a comprehensive set of ideas that they were working through that I did start to feel like, where does this begin and where does it end? But I have um, tried at least to suggest some of what I think are the key influences that have helped me come to understand abstract expressionism better. Abstract expressionism has often been called the first American art movement. There are those who dispute that claim, and indeed, as quick as I am to defend America's 20th century artistic output, even I have to admit that the abstract expressionists owe a very clear debt to European influences as much as to American ones, as I shall discuss today. But it's also a bit of a false dichotomy, as I want to uh, suggest in what follows. The ideas were circulating widely, and whether they were coming from America, from Europe, or where they were filtering through is less important to my mind than what they ended up producing. Abstract expressionism was the culmination and logical extension of a huge array of cultural, political, economic, and artistic forces, and it would be futile indeed to even pretend to cover all of them in a comprehensive way in a single talk. And if I did try, I think you would all be like, you know, pinned against the back wall as I threw stuff at you. So I hope instead to be sub suggestive, to point in the direction of a series of important influences and ideas that helped shape the movement that would become abstract expressionism and which really began to take shape in the mid to late 1940s. 
For the most part in this lecture, I'm not going to focus on painterly influences, of which surrealism is the most obvious and the most important. It's also the most discussed. But for now, let's just suffice to begin with an understanding that surrealism was a movement that shifted away from literal representational mimetic depiction and toward metaphor and symbol. So I think we want to bear that shift toward metaphor and symbol in mind uh, in, in what follows. But I'm going to be dwelling primarily, as requested, on social, political, and cultural influences, although these will also connect often uh, with other art forms, in particular with literature and music, as well as important philosophical and psychological developments. And of course, economics were driving, as they always do, much of human affairs. So um, as with New York, I think economics are more implicit than explicit in what follows. But in, you know, when we get to the Great Depression, it will be clear that economics is one of the things that is uh, um, driving these ideas. So let's begin with a simple matter of timing. Mark Rothko was born in 1903 and came to America in 1913. Arshil Gorky was born in 1904 arriving in America in 1920. Willem de Kooning was born in 1904 as well and came to America in 1926. Clifford Still was born in North Dakota in 1904. Barnett Newman was born in New York in 1905. David Smith was born in Indiana in 1906. Franz Klein was born in Pennsylvania in 1910. Jackson Pollock was born in Wyoming in 1912. And Philip Guston was born in Canada in 1913, but brought to California before 1920. I haven't mentioned when they died because today I am talking about influences. All of these men, and they are all men, were born between 1903 and 1913. They were children during the First World War, and they came of age during the 1920s and 1930s, by which time all of them were in America. And this is one of the reasons why I said at the outset that I'm less concerned with whether influences are European or American on these artists, because they were themselves, many of them, immigrants. But half of them were American-born, and half of them were American immigrants. And they were, so they were already in their own lives and in their own selves, their own histories, fusing these different influences. As Amy mentioned in her uh, introduction, I'm not an art historian, and I'm not an expert on abstract expressionism. That may disappoint some of you, but I believe in truth in advertising. Um, my area of expertise is American culture, however, including literature, cinema, politics, and history of the 1920s and 1930s in particular, which are the two decades that were in many ways the most formative for the abstract expressionists. As I said, there, the, our sense of what abstract expressionism is, um, it's first named as a movement in 1946, is very much a post-World War II phenomenon. And so it's really in the 20s and 30s in, and through the Second World War that these ideas are, uh, are you know, swirling around and, uh, and, and are going to take form in abstract expressionism. And one of my very basic points today, um, or it's really a tenet, really, that I, uh, that, well, actually everything I do comes back to this. Um, art, like history, is never monocausal. There's never one cause. So what I'm going to try to do is to bring together a series of causes, all of which came together in different ways for these different artists, but to give you a sense of some of the ideas and influences that were at work. So as I said, these artists were all children during the First World War. They came of age during the boom of the 1920s and the bust of the 1930s, coming to adulthood just as the nation plunged into the Great Depression. And then came the Second World War. 
By the time they began producing abstract expressionism in the mid to late 1940s, these artists, in other words, had known very little other than large-scale cataclysm. I mean, it was just one after another. History was catastrophe. Their art was a response to nihilism. What Nietzsche, whose ideas as popularized by H.L. Mencken were very influential in America in the 1920s, Nietzsche wrote of overcoming nihilism, which was a phrase that became very popular in their 20s. And that was a, a way of saying not that nihilism could be rejected or denied, but that it had to be recognized, accepted, and then conquered. In their personal lives, most of these artists did not manage to do this, but in their monumental art, they sought to. Although America did not suffer anything like the loss of life that Western Europe suffered during the Great War, it did share the tremendous loss of certainty that ensued, the loss of confidence, of hope and faith and progress that so famously marked the aftermath of the devastating conflict. This sense of discordance, of chaos and disjunction famously provoked modernism across all major art forms. Fragmentation replaced unity. Doubt and multiple perspectives replaced certainty. And a sense of the failures of old forms of representation led toward an increasing energy in experimentation. During the war, artists on both sides of the Atlantic began experimenting with abstraction, and again in different forms, not just in painting, in literature as well, as I will, uh, and soon in music, as I will be uh, discussing. Abstraction represented the extension of the ideas of post-impressionist painters like Cezanne and his emphasis on technique over content. It was a time referred to by George Steiner as the era of the crisis of the meaning of meaning. Painters and poets began searching for new kinds of language, new modes of representation. Symbolist poets like Mallarmé had influenced T.S. Eliot, while Paul Cézanne influenced Gertrude Stein, who tried to use words as she saw Cézanne using paint to create cubism in language. And this cross-pollination between painters and writers became constant and would continue through the abstract expressionists. Artists in many forms and many media were pursuing an autonomous, independent, personal aesthetic, rejecting old hierarchies and traditions. Stein was collecting Gauguin, Cézanne, Manet, and Degas by 1904 and became friends with Picasso in 1905. Picasso painted a famous portrait of Stein. She wrote a poem called Picasso. Right? Again, this sense of cross-influences really marked the um, modernist experiment. You had to recognize words had lost their value in the 19th century, Stein wrote, particularly towards the end. They had lost much of their variety, and I felt that I could not go on, that I had to recapture the value of the individual word, find out what it meant, and act within it. And that sense of having to rediscover the meaning in one's own language was shared not only by writers, but by painters and musicians. One of the things that these uh, artists did then was to move toward abstraction, in particular through repetition and fragmentation, through taking familiar lines and curves and assembling them in an unfamiliar compositional patterns. And, and Stein does with words what these later painters do with the line and the curve. Both uh, Stein and T.S. Eliot, uh, in his influ influential essay, uh, Art in the uh, Age of... Oh, I just messed that up. I, I actually just wrote a note to myself, you know, art in the age of tradition, and then I'm like losing it. So anyway, um, it'll come back to me. I've been trying to pull together too many. This is what happens when you try to do all of Hazlitt. It all starts to uh, converge in your mind. Um, anyway, it's um, Eliot's famous statement about the process of depersonalization, right? And the, the effort in this famous phrase to make uh, art depersonalized 
is not, I think it sometimes gets misconstrued, is not to make art less personal in the way we might mean that, but to make it less specific, to make it more universal, to try to break down boundaries between self and other. That effort toward liberation, toward the rejection of limits, toward universality in the individual would characterize most of the artistic movements that dominated the 20th century, including abstract expressionism. These ideas were all gathering force just as the abstract expressionists were coming into the world and coming into consciousness. On or about December 1910, Virginia Woolf famously de declared, human character changed. At the end of F. Scott Fitzgerald's first novel, This Side of Paradise, published in 1920, to tremendous acclaim and popularity, it was one of the most influential American novels of the early 1920s, and every teenager read it. There's no way these guys didn't read this novel. Um, his alter ego, Amory Blaine, discovers that his generation has come of age only to find all gods dead. Sorry, I thought, I liked the idea of using the Bende dots because they made me think of Lichtenstein, but they, they were much easier to read on my screen than I think they are on this screen, so I apologize for that. But this is the famous final passage from this side of paradise. Amory Blaine comes out the other side of the war uh, only to find all gods dead, all wars fought, all faiths in man shaken. The Victorian value system with its universal truths, its moral laws, its infinite progress, its benevolent God, all had been killed in the carnage of the First World War. The final passage of Fitzgerald's enormously popular first novel elegantly encapsulates, to my mind, many of the principles that profoundly influenced the abstract expressionists. I mean, to me, this could hover like an epigraph over the work that they produced. As an endless dream it went on, the spirit of the past brooding over a new generation, the chosen youth from the muddled, unchastened world, still fed romantically on the mistakes and half-forgotten dreams of dead statesmen and poets. Here was a new generation, shouting the old cries, learning the old creeds through a reverie of long days and nights, destined finally to go out into that dirty gray turmoil to follow love and pride a new generation dedicated more than the last to the fear of poverty and the worship of success, grown up to find all gods dead, all wars fought, all faiths in man shaken. Amory, sorry for them, was still not sorry for himself. Art, politics, religion, whatever his medium should be, he knew he was safe now, free from all hysteria. He could accept what was acceptable, roam, grow, rebel, sleep deep through many nights. There was no God in his heart, he knew. His ideas were still in riot. There was ever the pain of memory, the regret for his lost youth. Yet the waters of disillusion had left a deposit on his soul, responsibility and a love of life, the faint stirring of old ambitions and unrealized dreams. It's all a poor substitute at best, he said sadly. And he could not tell why the struggle was worthwhile, why he had determined to use to the utmost himself and his heritage from the personalities he had passed. He stretched out his arms to the crystalline, radiant sky. I know myself, he cried, but that is all. This loss of faith in the sense of good, the sense of pity and disillusionment, the idea that coming to terms with life is a poor substitute for illusions, but all you've got, leads to a reassertion of faith in oneself, in the individual potential to do something good or beautiful. And it was adopted as a kind of credo of those whom Gertrude Stein would later tell Hemingway to call a lost generation. The abstract expressionists were a generation younger, but they grew up in the shadow of the lost generation, already told that meaning was lost, that faith was impossible, that disillusion was inevitable, and that all that endured was individual consciousness. 
This faith in individual perspective and moral philosophy, philosophy quickly rose to challenge old monolithic master narratives in the culture like religion, progress, honor, all of which had been tested by the war and found inadequate. That inadequacy was perhaps most famously articulated at the end of the 1920s, and I just want to use these two quotes as kind of bookends, um, by Ernest Hemingway in A Farewell to Arms, when Frederick Henry declares of the Great War, I had seen nothing sacred, and the things that were glorious had no glory, and the sacrifices were like the stockyards at Chicago if nothing was done with the meat except to bury it. There were many words that you could not stand to hear, and finally, only the names of places had dignity. Certain numbers were the same way, and certain dates, and these with the names of the places were all you could say and have them mean anything. Abstract words, such as glory, honor, courage, or hallow, were obscene beside the concrete names of villages, the numbers of roads, the names of rivers, the numbers of regiments, and the dates. And so what we have here is a profound rejection of the abstract, right? And what's going to have to happen is that the abstract expressionists move all the way through that rejection of the abstract and back toward a reclamation of it, but in a different form. The question is, is abstraction the solution or the problem? And, that, and it really is a kind of dialectical conflict between the two. Um, where do we find meaning? Is it in abstraction or is it in specificity? In 1922, T.S. Eliot had depicted America as a wasteland, a place where only fragments of art could be short against the ruins of faith and certainty. It was an enormously influential poem, of course. It was unmissable. It was reprinted in newspapers around the country. You didn't have to be a student or particularly literary to encounter it. You couldn't miss it. And it was, of course, among many other things, a poem about the Holy Grail that was hugely influenced by Fraser's The Golden Bough and other works of cultural anthropology. Over the next 10 years, this idea of cultural anthropology and comparative mythology really started to explode through American culture, and there was a kind of uh, resurgence, a renaissance, if you will, in particularly an interest in, in uh, ancient Greek myths, but in any primitive and ancient myths. And, and um, we think of people like Edith Hamilton and her popular uh, works of Greek mythology, Robert Graves with The White Goddess, Joseph Campbell publishing The Hero with a Thousand Faces. That was 1949, but all of this is happening over the next 20 years. And they all contributed to the mythopoeic sense that the abstract expressionists would grab hold of. So it's in the air by the early 1920s as they're coming into adulthood, and it begins to really kind of dominate uh, American culture and particularly its ideas of aesthetics across the, um, the 30s and into the 40s. Another important literary influence, even more important arguably than the wasteland, on the expressionists was uh, James Joyce's publication of Ulysses in the same year as The Wasteland, 1922. It's a famously difficult experimental work, particularly for its stream of consciousness. This phrase, stream of consciousness, coined by Henry James's brother William, was a way to begin to articulate the experiments in representing consciousness undertaken not only by scientists, but by writers and other artists. It was also a way of beginning to reject the literal and mimetic as inadequate, as limited. As early as 1898, James was declaring in the turn of the screw that his story won't tell, not in any literal, vulgar way. And that sense that to just tell explicitly or literally what it was that you were doing as an artist was somehow not just inadequate but vulgar, that it was beneath you um, as an artist, is something that, again, would start to dominate ideas about art, um, certainly through the first half of the 20th century in America. It was a turn to the figurative across all the art forms, a turn toward abstraction and away from the literal. 
Stream of consciousness experiments throughout the 1920s by writers like Virginia Woolf were as influential as the automatic writing of W.B. Yeats. And all of these ideas of the kind of swirl of consciousness, of the stream of consciousness, of the automatic writing, of words just coming to you, are ideas that, again, the abstract expressionists were growing up with and, uh, and thinking about as they began to think about painting. But Ulysses was something new, not just because of its stylistic technique, but because of its scale. Its scale was breathtaking, blending the mythic, the individual, the poetic, the social, the political, everything into one monumental work of art. Famously, Joyce published the so-called Gilbert Scheme, or rather he gave it to his friend, uh, Stuart Gilbert, who then published it himself in 1930, in which he mapped out all of the different uh, chapters and their influences. Here's a more legible version of it. And you can see here the way that he's using not just, uh, he's using places, he's using myths, but each one has a bodily organ that's assigned to them. Each, one has, each section has a color that's assigned to them. Each section has its own symbol. Each section has its own art or discipline. And each one has its own, what he called, uh, technique, right? And when that came out in 1930, it suddenly made people see that there was, that, that, that you could attempt to do something that was at once profoundly specific. It's the story of, you know, one Jewish man in Dublin in 1916, and and yet, that made a claim to universality, that tried to, and of course, it's, a, it's an era, and we'll come, uh, come back to this at a couple of points in my talk, it's an era in which um, the Greek myths are seen as universal, right? I mean, we will now, I hope, all recognize that those are a very specific set of myths, and that the uh, Western uh, knowledge and Western um, uh, histories of art are not, of course, universal. But this is a move toward universality, um, and seeing, that, seeing whether uh, an individual work of art could be at once deeply personal and deeply specific, and yet somehow representative of all art, all thought, uh, all history. It is, of course, insane, um, but, I mean, it's an insane endeavor, right? And yet, there's something very exciting about that, particularly uh, in the aftermath of the, of the kinds of um, cataclysms and the resulting disillusionment that I was talking about, the sense that maybe art can do something, that it can do something very big. And then, of course, James went on to do something even bigger with Finnegan's Wake, and, and I like this, um, I like this image in particular because it rather reminds me of a great many of, uh, of some of the patterns that you see in abstract expressionism. You see what happens when you start to try to map and connect ideas. You actually end up with these kinds of webs and networks and spirals. And that sense of ideas connecting in a way that is at once linear and cyclical is something that, again, the abstract expressionists are going to try to represent. But it also suggests, for all of the necessity of lines in all of this, it also suggests a sense of the limitless, a rejection of boundaries. These schema map the novels, but they also suggest this attempt to be encyclopedic. They rejected boundaries, they rejected templates. They said you had to find your own way to a truth that you recognized through symbol, through myth, through cyclicality, energy, regeneration, color, texture, but it was up to the artist to find and it was up to the viewer to respond. In 1925, the year of the Great Gatsby and its prophecy that the American dream was already dead before it had been articulated, Eliot published The Hollow Men, right? And I just wanna give again that sense that 
the, the stories that are being told here are about emptiness and the need for some kind of regenerative art to, uh, to, to, to fill the, the vacuum, right, that has been um, created. And that leads me to the other uh, broad transformation to mention before I turn to more specific ideas, um, which is technology and science. You see, I, I did a little vacuum link there. I was quite proud of that. Um, especially physics. The special theory of relativity didn't merely transform science in 1905. Once again, it threw old certainties, Newtonian physics, into doubt. And it created a metaphor for modern life that is with us still. Everything is relative. Perspective affects knowledge. The center cannot hold. The margin sees things differently. Einstein's theories questioned the very solidity of matter. I mean, I've been talking about uncertainty, and then here comes Einstein and says, matter is not solid. X-rays discovered in 1895 enabled us literally to see through things. Einstein's theory of general relativity in 1915 demonstrated that the very fabric of space and time were not as we'd understood them. Everything was in doubt, in flux. Was light a particle or a wave? Was time a wave, a stream in which we swam, or a fold across which we stepped? The atom was split in 1919. And as a result of these, again, this is not a, a niche phenomenon that's just happening in the laboratories and in, you know, and in physics journals. So newspapers across America are talking about Einstein's ideas. It was on the front page of the New York Times. Um, this idea that, and suddenly lines and waves and particles are in the very atmosphere. Everybody is talking about lines and waves and particles and atoms and splitting the atom and what that might look like. They were transforming the world, transforming perspective. By 1927, Heisenberg had articulated his uncertainty principle. So uncertainty wasn't just a reaction, it was a principle of how the world was organized, which held that the very act of observation and measurement affected the results of an experiment. So there was no objective point from which truth could even be ascertained. The human perspective was not neutral but impinging, and thus we could only have probability and never truth. Suddenly, reality itself was unstable. In a world without certain order or fixed truths, a world of the kind of randomness Darwin had been advancing rather than preordained progress, it was impossible to advance or advocate a single aesthetic or moral philosophy, a singular perspective or interpretation. You could only see the world partially, individually, subjectively. Modernism in all its forms, literature, music, painting, sculpture, film, was responding to all of these ideas, to what was really a new world. Multiple perspectives, to take just one example, came to dominate literature. You might think of the experiments of Faulkner, for example, just as they did in art forms such as Cubism. One consequence of this was to assert that the meaning of any work of art resided not in its content, but in its formal aesthetic qualities. It was not about the story it told, but the way the story was told. Not the picture it painted, but the way it saw the world. The modernist foregrounded language in their novels. The modernist painters foregrounded optics, lines, colors, textures, and patterns on a canvas. Architects uh, foregrounded their, the materials and the function of what they were building. And musicians, composers, were emphasizing the structures of harmonics and dissonance in music rather than melodies. It was all about how it was made, how it was constructed, and, and, and as I say, how you looked at it. 
The effort through this was to revive, to regenerate, to stimulate an audience's imagination, and to shift their perception of the world in ways that reflected these new understandings. And these new forms, of course, did seem particularly suited to telling uncomfortable, painful truths about suffering, about carnage, about anonymization and atomization, about the effects of urban civilization and modern warfare. They couldn't make them pretty, and they wouldn't claim a unified truth, but they would try to tell multiple truths to get at something real. I want to just turn to uh, two important art, American art, uh, in, artistic influences um, that I think too often get left out of the story. Well, one doesn't and one does, but they come together and I'll do them very quickly and then turn to a couple of other key ideas. Um, and they are uh, Georgia O'Keeffe, um, who was doing abstracts by 1915, and of course this is the same year that Malevich uh, drew his famous, or painted his famous black square, which uh, is often held to be the beginning of, of abstract expressionism, the first pure kind of work of abstract expressionism. But um, O'Keeffe was doing uh, abstracts at the same time in America, and by the 1920s and 1930s, she'd become one of the most famous artists in America. She moved back toward representation and away from abstraction, but the abstraction was actually where she began. And she was part of um, the circle of Alfred Stiglitz, of course, who she would later marry. He first exhibited her, and he also um, was involved in the, um, in the he was the main uh, force behind the first shows in New York in America that um, brought uh, Amer uh, that brought sorry um, European modernism to America. In particular, of course, um, the Armory show in New York, where he brought uh, Duchamp and he brought Gauguin, Cezanne, Matisse, Braque, Picasso, uh, Kandinsky, and um, particularly the Duchamp nude descending a staircase, which caused a uh, an uproar. And at the same time, Stiglitz was starting to show Georgia O'Keeffe. Many have said that O'Keeffe was actually the first American abstract artist, which is a claim that I don't think she gets enough uh, credit for. And she actually said later that um, she felt almost trapped by representation. When she went to art school, everything was about representing the mimetic uh, social real. And in particular, as a woman, she felt that that was um, a kind of prison from which she couldn't escape, this insistence on representing the body or nature. And it was only when she had a teacher who showed her the ideas of abstraction um, uh, in 1912, a teacher called Arthur Wesley Dow, that, um, that she actually suddenly began to see that composition and design could be at the foreground, um, that abstraction was an alternative to mimetic representation. And she began to find her way forward. Stiglitz was exhibiting O'Keeffe's art annually from 1923, and within a few years, she was commanding some of the highest prices ever paid to a living American artist. Um, by 1940, she was writing, I love this line, uh, to friends. She said, too bad you don't like nothing the way I do, um, which is a kind of, again, it could be a kind of epigraph. Okay. Um, so those are the more sort of serious artistic and uh, cultural influences. And now let's turn to a couple that I think are a little bit more fun and a little bit more, um, in, at least in the way they play out here, a little bit more specifically American. First, the 1920s were, of course, the jazz age. During the 1920s, jazz was a master trope for American modern life. It was used to describe race, it was used to describe sex, it was used to describe drinking, it was used to describe baseball, it was used to describe, I mean, literally everything. Um, 
psychology, it was used to describe religion, it was definitely used to describe sin and vice, um, it was used to describe the modern itself, and it was used to describe psychology as well as youth. Um, one of the earliest known uses of the word jazz in American popular culture was in 1913 in San Francisco. And I want to mention, I'm going to now, in a couple of my instances here, mention very specific little regional papers. And that's my point, which again is to say these were not just uh, isolated East Coast phenomena. These are ideas that are penetrating to the smallest, most regional corners of America. I mean, San Francisco is a big city, but I'll get to some, some more uh, random ones later. Um, so that, you know, uh, so that a Pollock growing up in Wyoming um, uh, you know, Clifford still growing up in, in uh, North Dakota is going, to, is going to encounter these ideas. So the earliest known use of the word jazz was in 1913, and it was defined as a word that means something like life, vigor, energy, effervescence of spirit, joy, pep, magnetism, verve, virility, ebulliency, courage, happiness, oh, what's the use, jazz, nothing else can express it. This quotation came in an article that was called In Praise of Jazz, a Futurist Word, which has just joined the language. And before long, it was actually being associated um, with some of the modern art forms, including futurism, I mean, beyond uh, futurism. A few months, uh, oh, sorry, just around, I'm sort of skipping ahead here, but um, as, the, as the phrase uh, jazz started to take hold, the idea that America was living in a jazz age also started to take hold. And by 19 or, 1919 and 1920, again, little regional newspapers around the country were talking about the fact that America was in an age of jazz. You may have heard, this is an aside, but you may have heard that F. Scott Fitzgerald gets the credit for coining the phrase the jazz age. He took credit for coining it, but he did not actually deserve credit for coining it. Um, it was in the papers uh, three, three and a half years before he first used the phrase. So, um, for example, here's from a, a paper in Arkansas, which uh, hopefully will suggest why I'm bringing jazz into this context. Um, it was a it was a minister. A lot of these stories, um, these pieces in the local papers were ministers condemning jazz, of course, for the way it was destroying life. And here was uh, one sermon against jazz. Jazz music, free verse, and cubist art should properly fall in the same classification. They all represent an alcoholic state of mind. <laughs> Poetry, art, and music but reflect an age. This is a jazz age, an age that reflects the homebrew frame of mind of the people. Condemn homebrew and alcohol. Don't worry about jazz and free verse. They will die with the morbid ethnic mind that has created them. <laughs> I know. Um, the age of jazz was modernism, futurism, cubism, free verse, and free-flowing alcohol. It was liberation, but also these ideas that the modern art forms were tied up with jazz um, are always there from the beginning. And there is certainly a sense in which jazz, as a kind of master trope for American culture, just kept jazzing, right? It just kept shifting and improvising. The sense of both improvisation and repetition becomes crucial for the abstract expressionists, but also for the artists that they themselves would influence, most notably the Beats, who are drawing on both the abstract expressionists and on, um, uh, on jazz. And um, I also just want to mention, because I'm, I'm going to come back to him, but because I just showed the Malayevich, and, um, and just to give a sense of where this goes as well as where it comes from, um, we can look at something like 
uh, Lichtenstein, who starts as an abstract expressionist and then moves through into pop art, through using commercial art, picking up on the Malevich idea, also the idea of a speakeasy. Um, and, but particularly one of the things that Lichtenstein will come back to again and again is popular music, right? And, and any of you who know Lichtenstein will know that he's always using popular music. So this sense that all of these forms are beginning to influence what artists are up to. And in particular, jazz started to seem like a truly indigenous American art form. It began to be recognized as something that was. Now, of course, it wasn't really an indigenous American art form because it drew on African influences and it drew on uh, you know, West Indian influences and it drew on lots of other ones, but it was beginning to be seen as um, an American form. So that was the jazz age. That was the fun. And then in 1929, the fun came crashing to a halt in October 1929, and the Great Depression was upon us. And at that point, art in America changed um, fairly quickly and fairly dramatically as well. American art began moving away from the experimentation that had marked the first two decades of the 20th century and toward a much more politically informed and back toward a notion of social realism in art, uh, literature, um, and indeed uh, in music to an extent. The so-called Popular Front and the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, both sought to put artists to work, creating explicitly political art, even propaganda. They were seeking great statements of American public life, of history and identity that would uplift the people and help revitalize American society. And so what you get are the great murals, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, of the 1930s. They have a markedly Soviet style, and that's no coincidence. I'm quite fond of this one um, because it's Chicago, which is my hometown. Um, but I also think it's incredibly striking. And But you could easily, I could easily put that up and say that that was, you know, a, a Stalinist poster from, you know, and, and you, you'd go, yeah, of course. I mean, that's, and there's a reason for that. It's agitprop. It's, it is artistic propaganda. The great murals, um, these, these uh, immense murals, I should say great, I mean great in terms of size, I'm not making value judgments about them as art, but they are monumental, um, and they still grace some of America's most important public buildings, including several state capitals and a great many post offices around America. So again, if you're just growing up in a small town, you might well suddenly find that your post office had sprouted this giant Soviet-style mural. Art was subordinated to politics and propaganda. And Gorky had a great phrase for this, because um, this is just as they're all coming of age as artists, right? By the late 1930s, they're all painting, they're all starting uh, to work. And Gorky um, famously dismissed these um, WPA murals as poor painting for poor people, uh, which I always liked. Um, so this is an, uh, um, a famous example from, as I say, from Chicago, but one of the most interesting and most important um, and prolific of the muralists was Thomas Hart Benton. Um, and he really set the standard for WPA projects with work such as this one, which is America Today. I couldn't find a full-scale reproduction of it. It was actually lost for a little while, then it was rediscovered. It was, it was made for the new school in Manhattan, but um, that's a picture from when it was rediscovered. It was uh, made into an exhibition at the Met. Um, and so that's actually a, an image from just a few years ago. Um, but the, the painting, the mural itself, was made between 1930 and 1931. But it's also worth noting with all of this explicitly political art that was being made, um, that American commercial art of the day was also often allegorical and firmly social realist 
In particular, we might think of the influence of someone like Norman Rockwell. And we can see here that this is, this is allegorical, the four freedoms of speech. And this, uh, this um, sense of myth moving into allegory and that you could take the individual and let him be a symbolic representative of a national or indeed a universal perspective or attitude or value is something that the abstract expressionists would draw on. So here are, um, he did, there were four paintings. This is Freedom of Speech, which became enormously popular and important. And even later, Rockwell um, is, uh, was continuing to, to do kind of social protest painting with things like the beautiful, the problem we all live with. And again, you couldn't grow up in America in the 1930s without encountering Norman Rockwell. He was literally everywhere. And he's going to inform your visual iconography. Abstract expressionism didn't merely adopt the form of the mural and the socialism, uh, social realism, sorry, of such public art. They also adopted a tone. Surrealism, um, while sharing an interest with abstract expressionism uh, in subverting or rejecting social realism, surrealism was deliberately playful. It was ironic, it was humorous, it was tongue-in-cheek. Abstract expressionism, not so much. Um, abstract expressionism is earnest, it's serious. It has serious big things to say, and it wants to be reparative. But of course, what the abstract expressionist took from those murals was that sense of scale, right? That sense that a monumental piece of art might create a national or public collective sense of identity. And also, those murals create a real sense of movement of moving through the panels, of repetition but also cyclicality, that sense, and again, of lines and, and waves that you're moving through the panels, but there's also a strong sense in which each panel has, um, because they're so stylized and, and um, they're kind of variations on a theme, right? So, and you'll see that, that idea of a variation on a theme played out across a, a vast horizontal expanse again and again with the abstract expressionists. It also influenced their sense of the mythopoeic and allegorical possibilities of art, merging the surrealists' sensibility toward metaphor, so they move away from this kind of mimesis and toward metaphor, but still drawing on this allegorical and mythical scale. In particular, they were um, moving toward a set of symbols and uh, allegorical images or iconography, if you like, that drew not from social realism like this, but from particularly Freudian and Jungian ideas of myth, symbol, and the unconscious. Um, but so just to finish the point, um, even not just commercial art, but even advertising, right, is already moving towards abstraction in this era, and, and again towards the importance of color which clearly sort of pops there. So I want to give a sense of the way in which all commercial art is creating um, a, a, kind of, um, a kind of visual lexicon from which the painters are drawing. Another really important uh, trend or influence is that throughout the 1920s, popular Freudianism grabbed hold of America. In 1921, a Swiss psychoanalyst invented what is probably the best known psychological test of all time. His name was Hermann Rorschach and he had an idea about inkblots and the unconscious. So this is Rorschach's original inkblot test. There were 10 inkblots. I don't have to explain to anybody here what a Rorschach test is supposed to do. In particular, though, we should remember that the inkblots were there to trigger free associations, and they were um, 
And, and from those associations, psychologists were encouraged to draw conclusions about your, uh, about your character and about your uh, psychology. So for example, they, one of the ideas in it, which I really love, is that um, if, if when you move from the black into the color at the end, there were some who exhibited what they called color shock. Um, and, um, and if you exhibited color shock when the color first appeared, so you've seen a black and white and then, and then if you do that, you're repressed. I'm sorry to break it to you. <laughs> Color shock means that you're repressed. Rorschach certainly encouraged viewers to look in images and see their own ideas. And it created an iconography for the very idea of abstraction and indeed for the idea of the unconscious. Suddenly, this, this whole new idea that Freud, and this is you know, unquestionably Freud's greatest contribution, whatever we may think of some of the, of the specifics of some of his theories, which are certainly uh, debunked, and I think we can all agree that color shock probably doesn't mean that you're repressed, but, and that wasn't Freud anyway, we shouldn't blame him for that, but the, but the, the simple, the, the massive paradigm shift of introducing the unconscious into the conversation, into our understanding, of ourselves and of each other cannot be overstated. And, in, and what Rorschach does, in a sense, is give that whole conversation, that whole discourse about the unconscious, he, he provides it with an iconography. And again, this was something that absolutely swept America. Rorschach tests were being administered in schools by the 1940s. They were being debated. Um, clinical psychologists were being trained in this. And you can see it, um, this is from 1931, and again, I've deliberately gone for a little local paper just to give a sense of how widespread these ideas were. Ink blots reveal your character, and there they are, some of them reproduced. So you're going to see these images just by reading the papers. The idea that Rorschach influenced the abstract expressionists is not a new one, or that they were influenced by, this, by these uh, type of images. George Gross, who was a, a German painter associated with Dada, called Jackson Pollock a Rorschach test Rembrandt, right? um, which again is a great, uh, a great image. The influence of Rorschach shouldn't be taken literally. Um, that would be to miss the point with a vengeance. But it's hard not to see the influence of the idea in many of the major abstract expressionists. And it makes sense in a paradoxical kind of way, because it was giving them a form for abstraction a way to picture the kinds of pictures the unconscious might draw or be drawn to. So we can see Rorschach, I just put it up there for a point of reference, not only in Pollock, um, but also in uh, Gorky there. It seems to me you can see it uh, there. And, um, and even in early Rothko, as in this picture, Gethsemane, which was painted in 1944. Certainly in that picture, Gethsemane, you can see the surrealists. Um, you know, again, if I changed the name and put Dali, I don't think anybody would be surprised. Um, strongly influenced by the surrealists, but also, again, by this idea of the, of the mythopoeic, right? He's going back to the biggest myths of uh, Judeo-Christian culture and, um, and finding ways um, to represent them. And even the late great rectilinear blocks of color, Rothko said later made him realize he'd been painting Greek temples all his life. And of course, many people have seen entombment in those works and things. So they're um, very big and deliberately big mythical ideas that are being invoked. But where I really see Rorschach in the abstract expressionist uh, is in the work of Clifford Still. Um, and that um, PH385 is, is in the exhibition. You can go look at it. So, but of course, the joke of all of this is that it's a Rorschach test. So maybe I'm the only one who sees anything there, and I'm just projecting you, well, I don't see a thing. And then we can conclude that I have color shock and I'm repressed. I don't know. But um, 
I definitely, personally, I really see them in, um, in Still. And as I say, this is not to say that Still is being derivative of Rorschach uh, inkblots, but rather that, uh, that it gives an optic, it gives a language for thinking about projection, for thinking about the unconscious. Um, okay, and then one last point and I will stop. Um, I've kind of rapidly brought us through the depression. As I said, I don't really mention economics, but, I, but we can all gather that, and especially with the social realist stuff, I'm sure you understand what the economic and political battles were that were happening there, a lot like the ones that are happening right now, by a very strange coincidence. Um, and then, of course, all of that led to the second great cataclysm, um, or third, I suppose, of their lives, um, the Second World War. And it's no coincidence that abstract expressionism begins in 1946, 1947. It is an immediately post-war reaction. Um, and I just want to, to bring in one final major idea here, um, which we can uh, refer back to uh, Theodore Adorno. Adorno famously declared after the end of the war that to write poetry after Auschwitz was barbaric. Um, this was at the time, and it remains, a much debated claim. It also ignores, importantly, another statement of his, um, which I think, again, is very germane to the abstract expressionists, which was that art was the only remaining medium of truth in an age of incomprehensible terror and suffering. So I don't think he was uh, diminishing the importance of art. What he was expressing instead was what has become known in, in, as a shorthand in um, in kind of critical circles is the idea that there were limits to representation, that there were things that simply could not be represented. And famously um, for us in a, in a post-World War II world, the, the event, which is far too weak a word for it, um, that continually seems to uh, be impossible to represent adequately, impossible to conceive of is of course, the Holocaust. The idea that, that the Holocaust simply can't be represented, that there are limits to representation, is the kind of idea that will push you further and further into abstraction. This cannot be literally, explicitly shown. And, of course, the idea that, that, human, that trying to depict human suffering is going to at least fracture a work of art goes at least back to Guernica um, and further. But um, both world wars, had not just overturned certainties and all the things I've been talking about, but what happened by the end of the Second World War was that things that could not be conceived of were happening. And how do you represent what, the inconceivable? Where do you go from there? Adorno's friend Walter Benjamin made a statement that I think might help clarify Adorno's point. He said, there is no document of civilization that is not at the same time a document of barbarism. So saying that to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric, it seems to me, is not to say that poetry shouldn't be written, that art shouldn't be created, that paintings shouldn't be painted. It wasn't a prohibition. It was a recognition that the culture that produced the poetry of Goethe had also created the Gethsemane of the concentration camps. Civilization is not separate from barbarism because both are human constructs. Benjamin made another statement that is pertinent and worth closing with, his famous declaration that the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction had lost the religious aura that had once defined it. This was democratizing, because if a work of art can be mechanically reproduced, then everyone has access to it. But it is also flattening. 
And for myself, this famous observation has a very literal force in the context of abstract expressionism because I had seen reproductions of these work, works many times. They come in and out of what I work with all the time. But it was not until I saw them here on opening night a few weeks ago that I understood for the first time the scale and the texture and the colossal force of them. Mechanical reproductions of these work, works make them familiar, but they diminish them on every level. It becomes far easier to dismiss them as just a series of squiggles and wonder what that has to do with art when you see them in you know, two inches by two inches. Um, but if you stand beneath and against and confront, literally confront, Jackson Pollock's monumental 1952 blue poles, you cannot ask that question, it seems to me. That painting could not leave anyone sentient wondering what it has to do with art. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.